Hello and welcome to the SSA podcast. Uh, today uh, we have Dr. Nathan Critchlow with us who's going to talk about his uh, latest research uh, paper titled Awareness of Alcohol Marketing One Year After Initial Implementation of Ireland's Public Health Alcohol Act and During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Uh, Nathan, uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. That's okay. Glad to be here. So your, your study um, really kind of looked at two, two time points about trying to understand the impact of um, changes in alcohol marketing. Can Before we kind of go into that, can you explain why you looked at Ireland in particular? Is there, was there something specific about um, alcohol use and alcohol policies that made that an interesting uh, place to study? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of the alcohol context in Ireland, historically, they've had quite high consumption levels. They've had per capita consumption that's been higher um, than the rest of um, us comparable countries elsewhere in Europe and higher levels of consumption, particularly at risky levels, obviously linked to a range of individual social and concomitant harm. So a national context, looking at these controls is really important. But actually, Ireland's also really important internationally as well. Um, when we think about marketing and marketing controls, um, they are one of the best buys recommended by the World Health Organization in terms of reducing alcohol-related harm. Um, but there's actually not that much evidence underpinning the impact that these controls have. Although we've got other countries in Europe that have comparable controls, so Norway and France, etc., many of the controls in these countries were implemented years and years ago, almost decades ago, and there wasn't any kind of pre and post evaluation. So the kind of national context in Ireland is internationally important because it's one of the more recent countries to implement a whole suite of controls around how alcohol can be promoted and advertised. So understanding the impact these legislation have is important both in the Irish context, but it's going to have much wider repercussions for um, other countries that either have controls on alcohol marketing and advertising at the moment or are considering implementing similar policies in the future. So, so your, your work is looking at whether these controls were effective, whether they had the kind of outcomes that you'd hoped that they would have. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, pr- principally um, the research I'm conducting at the moment is uh, focused on the advertising controls. Um, and principally this is limiting where and how often um, alcohol advertising can appear in various places. The, the legislation in Ireland is really wide ranging. It contains measures um, all the way from minimum unit pricing to where advertising can be placed, um, where alcohol can be placed and how visible it can be in the retail um, sector and we kind of use some price promotions. Um, but the parts of it that I'm specifically looking at are the advertising placement restrictions. So that would be, for example, they have a restriction on ad- uh, having alcohol advertising on public transport, having any alcohol advertising outdoor near youth orientated environments so for example around schools etc and they've also implemented a restriction on some degrees of cinema advertising so it's only allowed now if the film itself has a um, classification for 18 plus or if the advertising is part of a a licensed premises in a cinema i.e the kind of part where they sell alcohol and then they're just for measures that have been introduced so far Ireland are going to introduce um, future controls. For example, in November this year, they're going to limit um, alcohol advertising during sporting events. Uh, They're going to limit what sports and what events can be sponsored by alcohol companies. And then further in the future, they're also going to implement a broadcast watershed on radio and television advertising. There'll also be restrictions around um, print advertising and also what that advertising is allowed to say, similar to 
the French approach, we're going to limit it to factual information and mandate that all the advertising has to carry a health warning about alcohol as well. So it's a really wide ranging piece of legislation and it's been implemented in phases. Yeah, I, I saw that one of the um, one of the measures was that they banned alcohol sponsorship at, at events aimed at children. It, it seems remarkable that you, you would have to intervene to stop alcohol companies advertising at, at events aimed at children. Did, did that happen a lot? It's hard to say. I mean, events themselves are very sports sponsorship is or sponsorship in general is a very tricky one to um, regulate because most of these events kind of have appeal across demographics. So the island legislation is events uh, aimed at or where most of the competitors or participants would be children in the audience. Um, so that would be like youth sports events, etc. as well. Um, I think the the broader, uh, the kind of other part of the legislation where they're limiting having alcohol advertising within a sporting area, I think that's going to have even broader impacts. Um, because that will reduce the visibility of alcohol even at events that are popular with adults as well. Um, mm. But previously, many of these things have been regulated through self-regulatory codes of conduct, which are policed both by the alcohol industry and the advertising and marketing industry. And there's a lot of literature out there that shows that there are compliance issues, that these are retrospective and slow. Sometimes the codes of conduct are quite ambiguously worded. So they're looking to try and take that onto a statutory footing. And it's a bit of a carrot and stick in that it's probably likely to be more policed and there's going to be higher levels of compliance, etc. There's quite a lot of similar uh, research and uh, discussion around um, uh, gambling advertising, and particularly in football at the moment, I know. It's, it's a fascinating area. I mean, from the literature that exists, I guess, prior to your study, um, uh, what do we know about the impact that alcohol advertising has on alcohol consumption? Yeah, it's a story of two halves, really. Um, we have a lot of research showing that young people, and um, particularly those under the legal purchase age, if they're non-drinkers, um, those who are exposed to greater levels of marketing are more likely to become drinkers in the future. And among those who have already started drinking alcohol, um, greater levels of marketing exposure are going to be linked to increased frequency of consumption, onset of hazardous or binge drinking. And we've been really lucky in the alcohol field to have almost four, maybe five decades now of longitudinal cohort studies following young people up and being able to demonstrate that. So the evidence, I would say, around young people is pretty well established. That's more internationally than evidence specifically at Ireland, but we found these findings across a range of different regions and jurisdictions, so they're likely to apply there as well. The evidence among um, the evidence for the impact on adults is a lot more sparse. We don't kind of have the same longitudinal cohort studies looking at how marketing impacts on behaviour, which would be a really good avenue of evidence um, for us to grow, definitely, not just in terms of a general population, but also looking at vulnerable groups in the adult population, so those in recovery, dependent drinkers. And there is kind of growing acknowledgement of a need for that in the, in the literature. The flip side, however, I would say that we kind of have anecdotal evidence that marketing works amongst adult consumers based on the amount that we buy and consume and the size of these companies and corporations. And myself and others have been involved in work before looking at uh, case studies and advertising case studies written by the alcohol industry themselves, where they talk about increasing volume, increasing consumption, targeting specific um, parts of the adult population. So. It's not as uh, rigorous and robust as those longitudinal studies, but I think we have good evidence to suggest that, that, market, that marketing works, which is the Kel surprise that they put millions of pounds into doing it. <laughs> there, was, uh, there was always kind of, uh, yeah, anecdotally, there's, there was that kind of, um, that test within tobacco 
policy that if the tobacco industries uh, resisted a regulation, then it was probably an effective one um, uh, to implement. So there you are. You're you're, you're well placed. Um, there's this, this wonderful opportunity to um, identify changes in in alcohol and awareness of advertising before the act was passed and after it was implemented. Um, and then right in the middle of that, COVID turned up. Um, how will you? Um, how can you start unpicking the impact of uh, the global pandemic uh, and the impact of the legislation? Yeah, you're right. When I was uh, when we were planning this study, and particularly when I, uh, I started my fellowship, um, the pandemic wasn't something that we were we were prepared necessarily to to deal with. Um, mm. I think, in terms of being able to unpick the the relative impact of the legislation and the relative impact of a pandemic, we can do two things. The first is that we're really lucky to live in such an information dominated world at the moment. And there's a lot of extant literature out there that we were able to draw upon to try and understand what ex- what impact the pandemic might also have had. So for example, there was Google mobility data that was showing um, you know, how often people were using public transport, how often were they visiting, visiting um, urban environments, etc. And we were able to, you know, we we're able to triangulate that evidence as well with the estimates of marketing awareness we were getting from the surveys. And we can see that clearly if people are using public transport less, then that's actually more likely to, that's obviously going to also be a contributing factor to the uh, declines in awareness that we saw. That said, the legislation still happens, so it's likely to be a combination of the two things happening um, together at the same time. So the other thing that we're looking to do is, uh, the other thing that we're going to be doing, sorry, is conducting further follow-up waves. So over time, as we collect data at future points where COVID restrictions um, are either lessened or not the same as they were at the point where we conducted the wave two, we'll then be able to look at, well, what happens to marketing awareness at that point? Does it spring back up? If it does spring back up, does it return basically to the 2019 levels or does it decline further or does it kind of come to a halfway house? So at the moment, with the data that we've um, recently published, we're very much going with precaution being the watchword. We can be relatively sure that both of these things have had an impact to some degree. So for example, even though people were using less public transport, the alcohol advertising physically came off public transport. So it's likely that they both did, but we're not going to attribute a level of contribution of either of those factors until we kind of get further down the line and we have future follow-up waves of data that help us understand that a little bit more. And one of the other things that we're also doing um, is that we're also collecting data in Northern Ireland as well, where the restrictions aren't being implemented. So in the future waves as well, we'll have kind of a quasi-type control group. There's differences between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, but at least the restrictions weren't in place in Northern Ireland. So we'll be able to look at how marketing awareness changes in Northern Ireland pre and post pandemic. And then we'll be able to look at those changes relative to what happens in the Republic of Ireland. So hypothetically, if we see that marketing awareness in the Republic of Ireland on public transport stays low, but actually in Northern Ireland it increases again once the pandemic restrictions um, are removed, we would be able to have greater confidence that actually more of a drop we saw initially was probably attributable to the legislation and less to the pandemic. Vice versa, we might see both levels of marketing awareness increase again for certain activities, at which point we could be more confident that it was related to the pandemic and less to, to the restrictions. So. It's kind of a very fun, very complicated natural experiment of which the <laughs> pandemic was an intervention that we didn't necessarily plan. Yeah, I, as I was reading this, I, I was thinking actually it's 
it's one of those things that, that like you say, there's this massive opportunity for a na- uh, natural experiment with with behaviour change, like global behaviour change um, with COVID. And actually, the one thing that we do need out of this period is to record as much data as possible. And actually, it might only be in the future that we're able to draw implications and, and findings from those data. But it's so important that we get it, even if we we can't quite make sense of it at the moment. Um, yeah, 100%. I mean, in this study that we did at the moment, we saw that marketing awareness went down for loads of activities that weren't subject to the restrictions um, at that time. So... For example, sports sponsorship awareness went down. That will be because sport was either initially cancelled or then that they weren't allowing uh, many, if any, spectators to attend. And we know that some marketing companies withdrew advertising spend to outdoors. So we saw all these other kind of marketing awareness decline. But interestingly, the marketing channels where we didn't see any declines in awareness were for things like social media, catch up and streaming services. These are the kind of marketing activities that could be served in home and that kind of tallies with wider literature which was looking at how companies themselves adapted their marketing practices to fit with the pandemic Um, and we know that there was increased use of social media um, etc online and you're right we only get one opportunity to get to capture that data and actually this is probably one of the one of the few if one of the only sources that's kind of captured that consumer experience during the time rather than just documenting industry behavior and if we pull all of those data sources together and we synthesize them further down the line we get quite a good understanding of both consumer and commercial experiences during the pandemic and how those two things meet each other which um yeah you're right if there are future pandemics or over um, any other future instances where kind of similar situations arise will be better informed as to um, you know how commercial entities will adapt their marketing practice to reach consumers, which is a good thing. And that, like I say, that applies also to gambling and other products as well. Um, so the, the two main things that you looked at were uh, alcohol consumption and, and awareness of advertising. Um, and and you, you found that there wasn't, there was no a significant change in alcohol consumption um, between those two waves, um, and that I, I found that surprising. I, I had always kind of assumed, uh, partially through uh, news reports um, and emerging data throughout the pandemic, that, that drinking had increased with people kind of stuck at home. Um, but that that's not what you found. Is is that something that, that surprised you? Um... It's been really hard with the media reporting about alcohol consumption during the pandemic because there's been a lot of studies and they all kind of have measured consumption in different ways and at different time points and with all slightly different questions. So I wonder to what extent sometimes the fluctuations we see in the media reporting is an artefact of what was asked and when it was asked, you know, particularly levels of consumption that, uh, you know, in the immediate early stressors, particularly when loads of people were furloughed, there was a lot more stay, stay at home advice, would have been very different to the kind of consumption patterns and trends that may have been reported later into the summer and autumn when society opened up again a little bit more. Um, the thing that was very reassuring was there was a paper um, published in Addiction just shortly as we were finalising hours that looked at changes um, in alcohol consumption across 21 European countries um, during the early stages of a pandemic. Um, and they found that alcohol consumption had declined in all of those European countries except two. And the two where it hadn't declined were in the UK, where it increased, and in Ireland, where it stayed the same. So the fact that we also didn't find any difference between consumption and ours, and that that also tallied with that um, with that paper across 21 countries. And then there was also a 
survey in Ireland specifically looking at changes in tobacco and um, alcohol consumption and they found that the majority of smokers and drinkers didn't change their behaviour during the pandemic. So again it's been quite nice to be publishing research at, towards the kind of we'll call it mid-pandemic stage because actually there's more and more research coming out at that one time that you can then use to kind of corroborate what you're seeing in our data but across the board those three studies all found no change in consumption which I think is you know, it's reassuring that we're all finding the same thing in different populations. Um, some of that might just have been, we certainly know that there were increases in um, purchasing from the off-trade in Ireland during the pandemic because many of the on-trade premises were shut um, and they stayed shut for quite a long period of time. Um, so whether the actual patterns of drinking change, you know, whether that led to more alcohol consumed in greater quantities but on fewer occasions, etc., um, we don't necessarily know that, but the top level kind of changes in drinkers and changes in what we call higher risk drinking have been pretty stable across data sources. Um, but, you know, there are risks to moving consumption away from licensed on-trade venues to the home as well. And I think both in Ireland and in many countries will still be unpicking what that actually meant for individuals and the kind of ripple effects in terms of harm for, for some time still to come, I think. Yeah, there's, there's there's always that difference, isn't there? When you're when you're looking at these kind of population um, population measures, that, that you find that you know there's either a, a decrease or or the alcohol use hasn't changed, but actually that can sometimes hide um, quite stark differences for vulnerable populations, where where something that was kind of perhaps risky drinking, risky level drinking, has has dramatically accelerated, but but that doesn't get picked up in kind of in these kind of broad studies. It's always worth uh, bearing those things in mind, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. The one thing I would say from, you know, of our paper is that we used a relatively top level measure of consumption. We were looking at whether people were drinkers. If they were drinkers, were they what we would call higher risk? And we used something called the Audit C to measure that, which is kind of a brief screening questionnaire, the sort of thing that someone would complete if their GP was asking them about alcohol consumption. And then we also looked um, how often somebody was engaging in binge drinking, um, which in Ireland is classed as six or more standard drinks on a single occasion. But that in itself is only the very tip of the iceberg about how somebody um, can and does use alcohol and then obviously doesn't kind of capture the wider impact on on others and health etc as well so hopefully as we continue through the pandemic as well and you know more and more studies are still coming out particularly through the peer review literature i hope that we're going to kind of gain a fuller picture and um, than we maybe have now what do they class as a, a standard drink in in ireland is that uh, a, like a, a small glass of wine a large glass of wine a half a pint so this i mean not coming from ireland myself this was something that really got was really interesting in terms of getting our heads around for the uh, for the survey and designing the measures so yeah a standard drink of alcohol i believe is uh, sorry a standard drink of alcohol is 10 grams of pure alcohol which i think is roughly about uh, i think it's about half a pint um uh, it's like a shot, like a pub measure of spirits would be um, classed as a standard drink. I think half a pint standard drink, small glass of wine, they're kind of examples of standard drinks. Um, so six standard drinks would be the equivalent of drinking like two pints and two shots uh, or two standard pub measures okay. of spirits, um, which is different to a unit that we have in England, which I think is eight grams of pure alcohol or 10 millilitres of pure alcohol so it's a real it's a real minefield um to try and work out but no in ireland they call them they call them standard drinks i, th I mean I, I think that whole area is fascinating how uh you know you could 
you could have the same level of drinking in in, in England, in Ireland, in say Portugal, uh, Spain are quite um, always a, a useful example for this. And and actually, your behaviour might not change, but its classification is either binge drinking or risky drinking, or, or neither of the above can change depending on the interpretations of the evidence within those countries or the interpretations and implementation of the evidence. So. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, particularly given that we're conducting the research in Ireland and Northern Ireland. So in Ireland, they class binge drinking, or they call it, I think it's heavy episodic drinking. They class that as six or more standard drinks, regardless of somebody's sex and gender, etc. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you look at how we apply units in the UK, it's uh, six or more of female or eight or more of male. And this, like you say, those kind of comparisons across countries then become a bit more muddied because you're asking people whether they're binge drinkers against different levels of alcohol consumption, whereas in Ireland it's a standardised <laughs> amount. So, it's, yeah, there's yeah, it's, there's a lot to kind of get your head around in that. <laughs> Sounds like a complicated area. Um, so uh, this this was um, the first, I think, um, a study in a, uh, a kind of series of studies, uh, a, a kind of longer body of research that you're embarking on at the moment. Um, uh, what's what's next in in that? Yeah, so so what we've done so far is we conducted a baseline measure in the Republic of Ireland in 2019, and then we conducted uh, two follow-up waves in October 2020, This time, that time conducting them both in Ireland and Northern Ireland. What we're doing um, over the coming years now is collecting data um, from both Ireland and Northern Ireland. We've just collected the third wave of data this year. It happened um, earlier this month. And then we'll be collecting um, the same data in Ireland and Northern Ireland again next year as well. Because what we have at the moment is only a snapshot of um, the impact that those initial controls had. Um, But Ireland are going to be implementing more restrictions on sports sponsorship in November this year. So so next year we'll have data that looks at both the lagged effect um, of those initial restrictions, whether awareness continued to decrease over time. We'll then be able to start to understand what kind of impact the sports sponsorship restrictions had. We'll also be able to look at the impact that the... um, the price promotion restrictions that they implemented in January this year has. So what we're looking to do is kind of collect data at the same point every year to build up a a long-term understanding about the impact that these restrictions have had, whether they've worked, to what degree they've worked. Um, And by having several waves of data from Northern Ireland, we're also going to have a control group, which will be really crucial in being able to pinpoint the relative contribution of the legislation versus the pandemic. I think if we hadn't had the pandemic, it would have been easier to attribute declines in awareness in Ireland to the legislation. But without having, but now we have the pandemic, without the Northern Ireland data, it becomes very difficult to say that with confidence. So we're really looking forward to looking at the Northern Ireland data because the wave that we'll have collected this October, it'll be the first time that we have both Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland data where the COVID-19 restrictions were certainly lesser than they were in the October last year. So we'll be able to look between um, last October's wave and this wave and really start to gain a bit of understanding about the impact that Ireland's controls have had. And also by collecting the Northern Ireland data, it will really help us inform um, policy in Northern Ireland as well. And, you know, they have their own devolved government, much like Scotland and Wales, etc. as well, are able to some extent to develop their own um, alcohol control policies. They've recently just published a substance and alcohol strategy and looking at how they can reduce harm as well. So they're not just they're not just a mere control group in this study. They actually can. The data that we've got from Northern Ireland itself will be um, really useful going forward. Um, And particularly given that 
when studies are conducted um, in the UK, quite often there's only a small number of people from Northern Ireland who are included in those samples. So this will be one of the first times that we've kind of collected data from a larger number of adults in Northern Ireland about how much they see marketing, where they see it, what kind of consumption behaviours, etc. and they engage in. So yeah, we're really hoping to produce evidence that's influential on both sides of the borders and by collecting data from both countries, they are also mutually beneficial to each other, really. So key studies for policymakers to uh, to keep on top of. Um, how about for, for you as a researcher? So is all of your time taken up with that? Have you got um, other things on at the moment? Yeah, so as part of my fellowship, I have um, a range of studies that all look at marketing controls um, in a range of different ways. We're kind of looking at the impact that they have. We're looking at whether controls that haven't been implemented would be effective. We're looking at how well they're designed and, and what kind of impact they have. So one of the other things I'm working on at the moment in parallel to the um, to the surveys that we've been conducting in Ireland is also analysing newspaper coverage about um, kind of rhetoric and discourse and framing around Ireland's controls because while we're producing evaluation evidence people will very much still be talking about it and there was intense media coverage lobbying and scrutiny for Ireland's legislation to come in and that's very much continued after the legislation was passed and of course you know both policymakers and the general population will be exposed to those news and media stories and in the interim between us collecting evaluation evidence and publishing it you can very much affect a population's perceptions about whether it was needed what kind of impact it was going to be having whether it's working um, etc and and even more so during the pandemic particularly when there's been you know large economic strain on businesses etc so we're also analyzing this newspaper coverage to look at um, whether it's positive whether it's negative what kind of arguments um, are made and that will both help us to understand or keep a finger on the pulse on what's going on in Ireland. But that sort of data is also useful for other countries that might be considering similar controls because they can look at the kind of arguments that are used um, on both sides of the divide and um, what kind of arguments are effective and um, what kind of industry counter arguments are made to oppose the legislation. So, for example, Scotland are planning to consult on marketing controls some point in 2022. Um, so understanding those arguments and discourses um, before they happen can be really useful in terms of making salient policy arguments. So between those two things, they're taking up most of my time, but further on in the fellowship, we'll also be conducting experiments looking at the impacts of changing the content or the presence of warnings, etc. in alcohol advertising. And that'll hopefully help to inform um, both the policy that hasn't yet been implemented in Ireland and again, other countries that are, are considering implementing similar policies in the future. Fantastic. Uh, plenty to uh, keep your eye open for. Um, okay, uh, uh, Dr. Nathan Critchlow, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome.